It's January 11th, 2017. Welcome to another edition of Bite Marks Cafe, where we serve you the first bite of today's science, technology, and, of course, startup scene. I'm Bert Lum. And I'm Ryan Ozawa. We're going to kick off today's show with a quick recap of CES 2017. Then we're going to hear about a couple of cool projects. Helen Cho will join us to tell us about this month's Startup Grind Meetup, which includes a wildcard East Meets West pitch competition. Then, with the official kickoff of the Alawai Challenge, Matt Gonser from Sea Grant returns to share all the details. Then after the break, we'll talk about artificial intelligence, a topic that's getting a lot of attention, not only in its implementation, but also in the impact that it will have on the future of work. What unintended consequences occur when machine learning and artificial intelligence enable computers to do jobs as well as or even better than humans. Of course, you can join the conversation by calling in or sending us a tweet after the break. Well, you know, I think uh, it's not going to be too long before this role that I play can be replaced by an artificial intelligent bot. Right, right. My intelligence is entirely artificial as well. Yeah, and I, I outsource all of my intelligence to Google anyway. <laughs> it's it's all off outsourced. Well, speaking of uh, um, technology, technology and uh, computer electronics show, which happened in Las Vegas last week, we actually culled a thousand, well, a gazillion amount of, let's see products that were showcased down to four. Right, absolutely. Now, CES happens every year. It's now in its 49th year, so next year is going to be the 50th year for CES. They don't call it the Consumer Electronics Show anymore. That's it's just right. CES. Yeah. But it is a showcase of new things coming out. In fact, half of the things that are announced never actually make it to market. These companies are just showing off cool ideas that they have. So yes, we were watching all the blogs and had to pick the ones that we liked the most. Um, this morning on uh, the Geek Beat Hawaii News Now, we, we started with a few. I picked uh, the new self-balancing motor Cycle from Honda. Is that because you want to, I guess, you know, like in some life you want to ride this? In another motorcycle? life, perhaps I'd want to ride a motorcycle, but they're all, you know, I'm very short, I'm not very coordinated, and these bikes are very heavy. So I think the idea of a motorcycle that can stand up on its own, stays, you know, stays upright even in, when the motorcycle is moving very, very slowly, that's attractive to me. Now, putting gyroscopes in the wheels of a bike are not new. In fact, people do that now as a substitute for training wheels. If you put a gyroscope in a bicycle, you can stay upright better and you don't fall off as much. But putting it in a large motorcycle, I think, makes a lot of sense. For older riders, shorter riders like me, um, I think that it's a great innovation. It'll be good for safety on motorcycles. Well, so I was kind of viewing various videos here and there. And, you know, of course, there, the idea of a 3D printer is not anything new. I mean, it's been around for a long time. But I did see a video of uh, Polaroid. Now, Polaroid is a, is a company that we have heard of in the past. I remember that. They company. kind of, I think, are re- inventing themselves, and they've come out with a bunch of 3D printers. But it's not the 3D printer that I was attracted to. It was the 3D pen. pen. Now, it's an interesting concept, right? A pen is usually 2D. You're doing something on a paper, a piece of paper. It could be a, a drawing or, or, or some rendition of something 3D, but it's still 2D. But now they've come out with a 3D pen that has something like a glue gun material that actually gets – you can actually build a 3D model with your pen. Right. So you will start on a surface, but you could make like, maybe, say, a public radio tower just by kind of drawing it in space and sticking those joints together. Now, you have to be a pretty good, I guess, artist to yes. do that. So I would take it, you know, to take it upon yourself to maybe learn a little bit about drawing and then take on that step of being a 3D artist. That was one of them. The other one that was kind of interesting to me was something called a puffer robot. Now, this is, come, this is a, a NASA project, and I just sort of saw a glimpse of this, and I thought, wow, this is kind of cool. i got to find a video, and I could not find a video. But it is a new project that NASA is coming out with where the, the robot is actually based on concepts of origami, where it sort of folds mm. up, 
and then it can easily deploy on another planet and you know and rove around. But uh, I thought it'd be cool. It's called a puffer robot. Oh, I'll keep an eye out for that one. Uh, my the last one I wanted to share was uh, Lego with yet another uh, division. It's called Boost. It's sort of building on their Mindstorm, which were which was robotics and ro- uh, motors and things and controllers you can do. But Mindstorms were pretty advanced. You probably have to be a teenager or an adult mm-hmm. to really get the most out of those. This Boost line from Lego is aimed at younger children, seven and up, and it has a, comp- a companion app. So it uses the same sort of block programming methods that you might see on code.org or something like that. But again, it has these controllers that work with any other Lego block. It's about 160 bucks, but you can have it move things. It has a sensor for light and color. It has a motor and all of these neat configurations that you can do. And one of the suggested ones that I liked was you could make a cat, a little, robo- uh, little robotic cat that could respond to putting something in its mouth because it has a sensor mm-hmm. that could respond to you pulling on its tail because it has a sensor that way. Um, and it can be kind of this little resp- responsive animal built out of Lego, but because you can use it with other Lego pieces, I think that's what takes it beyond a lot of some of these other like programmable, little yeah. yeah, like little bits, little programmable blocks, but you can throw it into your giant collection of Legos that you already have. Sounds good. Well, that's our recap of CES. Wasn't that great? Now you didn't have to go. You could you take that gazillion amount of You don't products. have to go to Las Vegas. That's you got right. us. Yeah. Well, of course, now we want to get to our real guest here. And, of course, we want to welcome Helen Cho. And she's from Startup Grind. She's going to tell us about a, the East Meets West wild card competition. Welcome to the show, Helen. Hi, guys. So tell us a little bit about uh, Startup Grind. I know we had you on a, a couple of months ago about some of the events that you are, are hosting. and But this is kind of a new a new idea, right? How's Startup Grind been doing? Sure. Startup Grind has been doing great. We started in September. That mm-hmm. was our inaugural event. We skipped December because there are so many holiday parties. Mm-hmm. And we're starting up again uh, this year in January. This one is special. It's different from the ones that we've had before because it's in partnership with the East Meets West Conference. And uh, the conference has a a pitch competition, and it's called the All-Stars Pitch Competition, where winners of pitch competitions in different countries would come and compete against each other in front of the investors and the judges at East Meets West here. And we are pairing up so that we can have one final wild card competitor in that main pitch competition, and the winner will be chosen at our event tomorrow at Startup Grind. So the ones that have already been picked, they've already gone through their pitch selection process. Yes, they've been chosen from their own countries. Mm -hmm. And so the one that you're doing that's coming up actually tomorrow, how did the participants or the ones that are competing get chosen to compete in this one? It's a free-for-all. Anyone can Ah. sign up for it now even. So maybe smart Smart Yields? Actually, Smart Yields will be already oh, okay. pitching at East Meets West, but this is a great opportunity to get in the mix that way. Oh, I see. Um, before we hear, hear a little bit more about tomorrow's event, I did want to give you an opportunity to share more about Startup Grind. It is a newer uh, monthly event, but it has a few twists on it that are different from other developer meetups or meetup groups and, and things themes, like that. And the themes, right? The themes are kind of interesting. Yeah. Sure. So Startup Grind actually started in California a few years ago and was a started as a simple meetup with entrepreneurs. They come together to talk about startup stuff and founding companies and investing and how to be a better leader. Um, It has since grown to all over the world and a lot of major cities have their own chapter. We started one here last year in September and uh, we've had three so far. We had the inaugural um, event that was at Street Grinds. And it was about uh, starting starting communities and projects that help 
build the foundation for other entrepreneurs. Mm -hmm. And then we had another one with an investor, and um, we had another one with uh, the last one was actually a Jeffersonian dinner, mm -hmm. and uh, we got together and we had a ver we had great dinner, and we discussed how we can be. Uh, supportive of the local economy mm. here. And that went fantastic. People loved the dinner. It was wonderful. Uh, they were able to communicate and meet other people who are leaders in their communities. It sounds a lot more social. Sorry. It yes. sounds a lot more um, uh, intimate that way. Mm -hmm. And I mean, when you go to meetups and I love pizza, you can get a lot, a lot of pizza at these events. But I would imagine a Jeffersonian dinner had something a little more above that. Sure. It was a bit fancier. So I can imagine people going and socializing and eating and probably having a good old time. But how did you actually get them started on the conversation? So the conversation, there's a theme for all of these dinners. The conversation started with uh, who is your local, who's your favorite local merchant and why? And so that that got the conversation started. And the, the format for the dinner is only one person speaks at a time and you kind of talk about your idea for how you think the local economy can be supported. And so we go around and what happens is when you throw a bunch of really smart people into one room, really amazing things happen. And my only job is to provide food and a good environment. And at the end of the night, everyone else gets everyone else's contact information. Mm -hmm. And then projects just kind of appear. And my job is to support that. So tomorrow's group. event is a special one, but I imagine there'll be more dinners in the future for Startup Group. Yes. So our dinners are going to restart in February. And we're actually twisting it a little bit. They're not going to be called Jeffersonian dinners. They're, go they're going to be called Franklinian dinners for Benjamin Franklin. Huh. Jeffersonian dinners are really based on social causes and social change. Uh, our dinners are really more about innovation and creativity and how to become more productive, which is more in line with Benjamin Franklin's principles. Oh, well, we'll definitely want to put the word out about that. But uh, before we let you go, of course, tomorrow is the, the the main event to promote. And in addition to having this East Meets West startup pitch competition, you will have, as you have in past uh, events, a featured speaker who's uh, on tap tomorrow. Yes. The speaker featured tomorrow is Casey Lau. He is actually the new entrepreneur in residence at Blue Startups. And uh, he's also, he's Kind of a big deal with the Asia startup scene. Mm -hmm. He built up the scene out there in Hong Kong. Yep, Startup HK. He's, I think, originally Rise. from Canada. He did a lot in Singapore as well. Mm -hmm. he, we had him on the show talking yeah. specifically about Asia opportunities. Yeah, very cool guy. Well, thanks, Helen, for joining us. Mm -hmm. So if somebody wanted to participate in Startup Grind uh, HNL, um, what are the details in terms of location this month, and where can they go for more information? Sure. Uh, participants who would like to pitch and also audience members, they can get tickets at startupgrind.com slash Honolulu. Uh, the event tomorrow starts doors open at 6 o'clock, and it will be at Kaka'ako Agora. Oh, nice. Sounds good. We'll put that up on our show notes. Thanks, Helen. Thank you. And, of course, uh, we want to welcome Matt Gonzer, and he's from the Sea Grant College over at the University of Hawaii. He's going to – and he's – actually, we had him on just welcome a back. couple of months <laughs> ago, but he's here to tell us about the official kickoff for the Alawai Challenge. Welcome to the show, Matt. Aloha. Happy New Year. Thanks now, for we, having me back. When we had you then, we kept asking you questions you couldn't answer, like, well, what's the criteria, and what are the various points on the calendar, and how can someone participate? But now the floodgates have opened because the, the, the uh, challenge actually launched on Monday? Competitions abound in this segment. Yeah, challenges, challenges. Uh, the Alawai Challenge, Make the Alawai Awesome Student Design Challenge, hosted mm -hmm. by the University of Hawaii, inspired by President David Lasner, has officially opened as of this past Monday, January Fantastic. the 9th. 
we're currently in what we're calling the registration period. So that runs through the end of this month, January the 31st. And um, the brief and the details are all available at the challenge website, Aloi Challenge, one word, aloichallenge.org. And um, we can provide all the information right now. So what now, do we want to know? When you say <laughs> students, what age group are you focusing this challenge uh, toward? What student level? We had a really um, good discussion about this, and we thought it was important to be as inclusive as possible. Um, even when we started making the introductions about the fact that this challenge would be happening. Again, this was first announced at the IUCN World Conservation Congress on September 5th by David, uh, President David Lasner. All the local schools were like, how do we, how do we participate? Mm-hmm. Uh, how, how can we get our students engaged and educated in the challenges in our backyards? Um, so we realized, oh, there was a strong desire for a lot of local participation. We originally, to be honest, thought it was going to be a university level, international, national you know, college, any level, bachelor's, master's, PhD mm-hmm. candidates. But we thought it was hugely important and it would have been a, a very big missed opportunity to not ensure particip- the ability to participate across the board. So that we, there are four categories. Um, primary school, which, as we learned from some of our education colleagues, is K through five. Uh, middle and intermediate is sixth through eighth grade. And then the high school category would be ninth through twelfth grade with, as I mentioned before, the college university level being any 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 um, level within a university. Well, I'm glad you defined that because I always thought that middle and intermediate were the same thing. Like from, let's say, eight, nine, eight, seven, seven eight, nine was the intermediate. But actually, six and seven is also part of that. Yep. That's, okay, that's how we were told. Now, do the, let's say, primary middle school, do they have to come in as a team or can they come in as an individual? What's the dynamic for that? Again, we want it to be rather flexible. Um, we encourage a team component, and we think it'll take a lot of minds to really address the, the various uh, things that we're asking people to respond to. Mm-hmm. But a team could be one individual. A team could be up to any number of individuals that you like think class, you can, you can manage, sure. right? Um, there are a lot of other competitions, particularly at the university level, that are pretty prescriptive. You know, five team members, no more. You must have three disciplines. We encouraged interdisciplinary, but we didn't want to be so prescriptive that someone either felt they, they didn't want to have such a large team or they really believe they can tackle it themselves. So we, we made it rather flexible. Mm-hmm. But there is a component that is obviously in support of educational objectives. And to form a team, you can't just have students. There needs to be someone involved to kind of direct that as well. Right. Um, we require a faculty advisor in any of the categories, mm-hmm. particularly, obviously, in some of those lower grades. It's most likely going to be a teacher who's uh, introducing the topic or seeing if people are, are um, willing to participate. Um, but we also thought it was important to engage faculty at the college and university level to ensure that students are tapping into their resources mm-hmm. that they have available to them, learning, use it as this opportunity to either make it the, the topic for that course in that semester or to take it on as an extracurricular. As we discussed the last time we were on the show, there are so many ways that someone could come up with ways to make the ROI awesome again, and it's a multifaceted problem and a challenge that can't be solved by building a wall. So what were some of the categories that people can now sort of form their ideas within? Right. So we're calling it your vision plan, and we're asking you to include concepts in these broad categories. There are five with sort of a plus six one. Ecosystem restoration, flood mitigation, community education and engagement and cultural connections, community access, mobility, and recreation, 
and then also economic health and resiliency. And then that six plus one that I was talking about, we recognize that the, the generations before us have been struggling with the complexity of this, and it's going to take a long time to make it awesome, particularly in all those categories. So what is one action or a suite of actions that could have some kind of impact in the next one to two years? So we're we're calling that an early action identification. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, in terms of the outcome, I mean, obviously, these projects will all get judged, and then there's probably a panel of judges. Uh, there's some money associated with that. Mm-hmm. But I think what's also important is what happens after you know, the judging takes place. What is the actual long-term vision to actually make the ROI awesome? Sure. So we, to your, your specific for the challenge, we do hope to have um, a public exhibition of finalists and the, those that are selected sort of first prize in those categories. We also hope to have kind of an online social media people's choice mm-hmm. opportunity. So that's another way to engage folks in, in uh, what has been presented from our creative youth. But I, I would say it's, it's kind of to be determined. You know, we don't know what kinds of ideas will be provided. Perhaps there could be something that professionals have not really thought of before and and the community sort of coalesces mm-hmm. around that and makes that a priority moving forward. I think we're just going to have to wait and see. Um, and that's that's something that excites me. So great. this is the month for registration, forming teams, and signing up. Mm-hmm. What does the rest of that calendar look like? Mm-hmm. And where can people go to join up? Again, so registration closes January 31st of this year. It's a hard stop. Rules are rules. And then submissions <laughs> are due March the 17th, 2017. So that's St. Patrick's Day. It's a Friday. And then... For the month or so thereafter, there will be the judging, and then winners will be announced in the month of June at the uh, World Youth Conservation Congress, which is also being hosted by oh, the University of Hawaii. Very good. I and mean, maybe be, maybe back in June we'll have uh, some of the winners come that on the show. That would be great. So uh, that website again? Aloaichallenge.org. One word, Challenge. Very good. 20 days to sign up. Thanks, Matt, for joining us. Thank you. And, of course, we'll take a short break. And when we return, we'll be joined by Jim Dater and David Chin, both from the University of Hawaii, to talk about the growth in artificial intelligence and the impact on the future of work. How will AI change the way we think about our jobs and technology? And will it move us closer to concepts like basic income? Of course, we'd love your thoughts or questions as part of that conversation. You can give us a call at 941-3689 or reach us toll-free from the neighbor islands at 877-941-3689. And, of course, we're live in the studio. You can Tweet us your questions at, at Bite Marks or at Hawaii. This is Bite Marks Cafe. Swing in the new year with jazz duo Lenore Raphael and Wayne Wilkinson. Experience their unique style and chemistry in our intimate Atherton studio on January 14th. For tickets to this evening of jazz standards, call 955 8821 during business hours or go to hprtickets.org. Sponsored by Bonnie Rice and the Rice Partnership, Wealth Management. You like being in the know, and HPR emails will give you previews of what our local music hosts and news and talk show teams are working on. Sign up online for our emails and receive special offers and invitations to events, too. Of course, the real advantage to you is that you'll be the first to hear of the exciting station news just around the corner. Find our email sign-up form at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for Bite Marks Cafe comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk show programming. 
Mahalo to contributors Kaiser Permanente and Hastings and Pleadwell, a communication company. Welcome back to Bite Marks Cafe. I'm Bert Lum. And I'm Ryan Ozawa. And joining us today are Jim Dater and David Chin. Uh, David is, uh, I mean, uh, Jim, of course, is a longtime uh, professor and director of the Hawaii Research Center for Future Studies, who uh, for nearly half a century has sculpted the very discipline of future studies. David, meanwhile, is a professor and chair of the Department of Information and Computer Sciences at the University of Hawaii and teaches undergraduate and graduate-level courses in... Artificial intelligence. And, of course, we will start with this basic question. What is artificial intelligence and why is it so relevant today? Of course, we'd love to hear your questions and comments. And that number to call is 941-3689 on Oahu or 877-941-3689 from the neighbor islands. We want to welcome you both to Bite Marks Cafe. Thank Thank you. you very much. So let's start with some real basic understanding Artificial intelligence isn't something that is brand new. It's been around for perhaps Decades. 60 years or so. Yeah, since so, the 1950s. So, David, give us a, give us a sort of a, a primer on what is artificial intelligence. Well, that's actually hard to define because <laughs> it's, uh, the meaning has changed over time. Mm-hmm. So initially, you know, people thought that you know, just being able to get computers to you know, do relatively intelligent things like you know, play chess play would chess. be intelligent. And then once that succeeded, you know, people suddenly decided, well, that's not really intelligent anymore. And, you know, more things became, uh, more difficult things became labeled as intelligent. Mm -hmm. Where you like had Eliza, I guess, in the 60s, sort of a text-based conversation, you know, trying to see if it could reasonably approximate having a conversation with a real person. Right. So that's sort of the ultimate test. It's what's known as the Turing test Mm -hmm. after uh, Alan Turing, the famous computer scientist and mathematician. Uh, there was a movie out about him recently. Uh, you know, his idea was, you know, if you could put, you know, a computer or a person in a room and communicate with that person or computer via teletype from outside of the room, and the tester would be outside, and if the tester couldn't tell whether they're talking to a real human or a computer, then that would be said to have passed the Turing test. Mm-hmm. Now, from a from a technical standpoint, what would be the let's say the knowledge base upon which the computer is drawing, and how would it make the association for the right answer? Yeah, so that's really difficult, right? So we're nowhere near you know being able to get to the point where we can actually pass uh, the Turing test. I expect that I won't see it in my lifetime, and you probably won't see it in your lifetime, uh, is my guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And what is it? What is it that's so difficult about that? I mean, what is it that, uh, from a technical standpoint? Right. So, from a technical standpoint, it's just the huge amount of knowledge that goes into a person uh, that is hard to, uh, you know, get into a computer program. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, you know, right now, uh, what's really driving artificial intelligence is the ability to take lots of data and learn from it. So that's where we're making huge strides, and that's why artificial intelligence is starting to take over some of the things that you know, will affect future jobs. Right? So, for example, self-driving cars, uh, you know, 
basic conversation. You know, so not to the point where we can actually pass a Turing test, but you know, being able to you know, help people with you know simple problems. You know, so like help desk kinds of things. Now, Jim, I know you've been imagining what the future has been like for most of your life. It's a f- great way to be passionate and uh, a great passion to have in terms of imagining what the future might bring. And I know that uh, in our lifetimes, it already it seems like technology has advanced to some. Uh, impressive and sometimes frightening degrees. I know that uh, people sometimes show artificial intelligence they are going to think of something like uh, the Amazon Echo or the uh, Siri on their phones or Cortana from Microsoft, you know, conversational agents. But obviously it's a much bigger uh, bigger pool than that. How do you, from your perspective, in, in the broader scheme of things in terms of how humans interact with technology, how have you seen artificial intelligence as a concept evolve? Well, I agree with what uh, David said at the outset. Um, My definition of artificial intelligence I'd learned from David Miller, uh, who had taught at the International Space University in France, where I also teach. He taught robotics and AI there, now at Oklahoma State. And he said, artificial intelligence is what technology can't do yet. So that is, it's, cons- it's always ahead of us because we just take it for granted after a little while, especially people born in to a particular type of technology, which might be new to me or new to you. It's not new to them. It's just part of the environment. And so it's a very definitely a constantly moving uh, target. And that's one reason why people, in a sense, aren't alarmed or even aware of the changes that have occurred over time, whereas an old fart like me has indeed seen tremendous changes, especially being here in Hawaii, where we are so physically isolated from everything else, developments in electronic communication technologies and the uh, jet airplane are the, and the credit card. Those three things are the major things that have transformed my life and enabled me to live in Hawaii but work on a global uh, scale. Mm -hmm. So I've seen a lot of technological development and a lot of subsequent social and environmental change in my own life and then look at it historically and futuristically as well. Well, you know, in terms of uh, changes that have already been impactful in terms of the work environment, I mean, robotics and automation has already impacted a lot of the sort of the line worker, right? And if there's more intelligence being put into, let's say, sensors and data gathering, uh, I would imagine more of those types of jobs would be perhaps eliminated. I mean, do you see big data becoming uh, more, I guess, mineable? I mean, and, and is there, are, what, are, what would be some of the other types of jobs that would potentially be threatened? Well, I'm, first of all, I'm glad that we have linked artificial intelligence with robotics because artificial intelligence alone isn't going to do much. But if you now have autonomous beings, Mm -hmm. uh, things that can move around, manipulate, interact with the environment, interact with people and each other, you have something more far more profound than just a brain in a box, for example, which might you might be able to converse with, but big deal. No, so what's happened, in fact, you have to, one thing about being a futurist is you spend a lot of time looking at history, looking at the distant past, and seeing how, uh, what has changed and what has not changed over time and how and why. And one of the things I think that um, I, I try to understand is that for most of human history, we lived as nomadic hunters and gatherers in a super abundant nature. So there was no such thing as work or a job. Uh, you simply 
if you were hungry, there was all that stuff out there for you to get. And uh, it, it was sort of fun. It's like people who go fishing and hunting mm-hmm. and, of all things, play golf. I can't imagine anything worse to do, more agonizing than playing golf. A lot of people like to do it. They consider that fun. And so it was sort of fun back in the old days, too, when nature was very abundant. Mm-hmm. But then with the invention of agriculture— and why that happened, why that transition from hunting and gathering to agriculture is debated, that's when labor began. That's when hard work began. And the real explosion then is with the Industrial Revolution, when humans were still needed uh, to do things to help manage and uh, create uh, the things that monstrous machines with energy that we didn't and materials we had before were able to do. So there has been this progression over history in which uh, we have moved from not working to working all the time and define, having work define who we are mm-hmm. to the situation where, as you said before, more and more things that uh, once upon a time human um, labor, uh, physical as well as metal, were required for to a situation where most physical labor became unnecessary and now we're on the verge of even metal decision-making is not necessary, uh, is not the monopoly of humans now mm. and increasingly less so. You know, we're talking to Jim Dater, who's the uh, director of the uh, the Hawaii Research Center for Future Studies over at the University of Hawaii, and of course, David Chin, who is the chair of the Department of Information and Computer Science over at, you know, at the University of Hawaii as well. And we're talking about artificial intelligence. And if you have a comment or question, feel free to give us a call. Number here is 941-3689 on Oahu or 877-941-3689 from the neighbor islands. We want to welcome Doug from Makiki to Bite Marks Cafe. Welcome to the show. Hello. Can you guys hear me? Sure. Yes, yes. we can. Yeah, um... My question is, and this is after reading uh, Ray Kurzweil's book on the singularity, and you might have to uh, um, answer the question as an opinion, but what is, what is the um, relationship of artificial intelligence and consciousness? Can something that becomes extremely uh, uh, intelligent, can a machine that becomes extremely intelligent also uh, become conscious? Uh, I'd like to turn that question. Great question, Doug. Thank, uh, thanks thanks for the question. Yeah, and what? So, Jim, you want to you want to jump into well, that one? I want to jump into it to the extent of saying that Ray Kurzweil and that book and concept singularity is an extremely optimistic, in, from one point of view, um, understanding of technological change that's on the horizon now. And he does believe that it's possible to create a brain, artificial brain, equal to and then very soon superior to. Uh, the human brain. I'm not so sure, and I'd like to know. Yeah, what so David yeah, so thinks. David. I mean, you know, Turing test is just a, a ability for a human to perhaps uh, miss miss uh, or accept the reaction or for the conversation as somebody else, you know, as another human. But that doesn't imply consciousness. No. Uh, so, you know, my viewpoint is that we're nowhere near the point of a singularity, and it's not going to happen in my lifetime. And I'd be willing to bet my life on that. <laughs> uh, but yeah, who knows? You know, you might have a revolutionary technique that comes along, but you know, we haven't seen that in the past, you know, seventy years that AI has been at work. I liked how Jim said that AI is sort of the 
the next level of computing that we haven't seen yet, and it'll always be that. But on the other hand, when we're talking about machine learning, we're talking about uh, ways that computers don't just say input X and output Y, but they can adapt somehow and adjust the way they learn or the way they process information as a part of their work. I can see how you might be leading toward something that could be conceived or misunderstood or even defined as consciousness. But uh, it is. I, I would agree that you only need to argue with Siri for a couple of minutes to realize we're a long way off from that. But right. uh, yeah, so to answer the question, though, uh, you know, if you have something that can pass the Turing test that is at the singularity level, I think it would have to be conscious. You know, there's no way that a non-conscious artificial intelligence, you know, could be at the singularity level. But if it can inspire empathy, if it can make someone feel that there is a consciousness there, I think the natural question that Doug might would ask next is, then you get to the point where you you ask about rights. You ask about sentience and saying, oh, well, before we were upset that uh, robots are taking our jobs, but now what about robot rights? I mean, is that an, an uh, uh, inevitable collision? Yeah, I mean, I think that's something that's coming in the distant future. You know, when we do have artificial intelligence, you know, what rights do they have? And can well, we just I, turn I them off? <laughs> yeah, you, you said that was right very, you said it was very <laughs> yes, optimistic. What is the, what would be an alternate view of the opposite uh, rather than the Let me first view? say that we don't know what consciousness is from a human point of view. And there's, it's not clear that we are conscious or what it is. There are many scientists who uh, work in the brain level, neuroscience, who say, no, we don't know what that is, much less how the brain, human brain itself operates. So I think that we ought not to compare what the machines can do and the way they do it with what humans do and the way we do it. And simply look at, uh, from from the internal point of view, but simply look at the consequences of this. We uh, have been, for a long time, as you mentioned, been using um, uh, artificial intelligence to make decisions uh, in flying airplanes and deciding what seat you get on that airplane. In just millions and millions of ways, our world could not work if humans had to be making decisions that are currently being made by what I'm willing to call artificial intelligence. Um, they're operating by heuristics, by mathematical formulas based upon something similar to the big data that you mentioned, Bert. And so uh, we have are now able to um, uh, crunch numbers, much quick, bigger numbers much quicker uh, than was ever able to do before. And that speed alone is approaching uh, that of uh, human decision-making and in many areas uh, replacing it. Often what interests me is the conflict between a decision a human would make and that a uh, computer would make. And uh, how often is the human right and how often is the computer right? And my observation is while they both make mistakes, we all make mistakes, humans are more likely to make mistakes than computers are in the areas where they have been trusted and trained for a long time. But is that intelligence? I don't think so. David, you, you look like you have, I mean, like it's, it's just all an algorithm, right? Just tweak the algorithm. Well, it's a little more complex than that because you know, there are all sorts of you know, boundary cases that you, know, you need people to think about. So mm -hmm. you know, what happens you know, if you have a self-driving car and this really strange thing happens? You know, people can deal with that, but you know, your algorithms might not be able to because you know, the people who are programming them never thought about putting that in there. 
Right. I mean, the most frequent kind of examples are, for example, a self-driving car might be able to easily make the decision not to go off a cliff versus a deer. But if it's vers- if it's a cliff versus a bus with people in it, then it gets a little more complicated mm-hmm. that way. You know, we're having a great conversation. Now, of course, if you want to join that conversation, feel free to give us a call, 941-3689 on Oahu or 877-941-3689 from the neighbor islands. We want to welcome Rena from Halaiva. Thanks for calling. Hi. Yeah, I had a question. Um, Obama mentioned briefly in his speech last night, he spoke to increasing automation in, you know, manufacturing and whatnot and how that's kind of caused a little bit of a disruption in, you know, job markets. And um, I kind of wondered your opinion, like, what can the government do to kind of keep up with the job demand, but also, you know, things are becoming more and more automated as far as manufacturing and, you know, all sorts of jobs. Um, And you could make the argument that automation kind of lessens certain mistakes that humans might make. Um, what can a government do to kind of keep up with that and keep everybody happy? That's a great question, uh, Rena. I mean, uh, who wants to tackle that uh, before we go to our little break? Well, I'm willing to do so, but David is chomping okay, at the David. <laughs> I, I agree with Obama in that you know people are going to need more advanced degrees you know to do the jobs that will be needed in the future, and I think free college is a good way to go. Well, well, what about the government? I mean, should the government play a role in perhaps, uh, let's say, um, holding back the advance of artificial intelligence and automation? No, I mean, you can't hold it back. You know, right, even if right. the United States decided to do that, the rest of the world will bypass us. Mm-hmm, it will be left in the dust. Right, right. But I mean, I think she makes a fair point in the sense that we are okay when automation takes away jobs people don't want to do. But when automation takes away jobs that people either want to do or need, then that conflict is almost unavoidable. And it becomes kind of a policy question. I agree that if uh, we put in place policies to limit that, then other nations that don't feel that same pressure would be happy to run us down and go straight ahead. But, Jim, your thoughts? We're now getting, I think, to the key issue, at least the one that I'm concerned about. I frankly don't think we can ever have what's called full employment again. Uh, we have full employment at the, or very low employment, unemployment at the present time because we don't count so many people who sh- uh, otherwise would be in the labor force. We just say they're not there. And then we have people in extremely low paying, uh, uh, bad jobs that are counted as being equal to uh, really good paying jobs in the old industrial era. So from my point of view, the main policy issue and the main discussion that here in Hawaii and everywhere in the world we need, and it's clearly something involving government and religion and everything else, is uh, if what percentage of humans are still needed in order to produce goods and services? And what can be done without any human uh, direct involvement? I feel that there is no way uh, we can replace good jobs, meaningful jobs, uh, and have artificial intelligence and robotics proceed, as I think it should. Therefore, we have to, instead of trying to educate people into jobs that ultimately won't be there, we need to educate people into leisure, peaceful leisure. I'm for full unemployment. I kind of like that idea of you know, going to <laughs> school for the purpose of leisure. Uh, but, you know, 
<laughs> learning for the sake of learning. I, I, and I do want to explore this a little bit more about the idea of full unemployment and the, also the concept of this sort of basic income. But before we do that, we want to go to a short break. We'll hold that thought. We'll be right back after this short break to continue our great conversation with Jim Dater and David Chin about artificial intelligence and the future of work. Of course, we'd love to hear from you as well. Thanks for your calls. You can call us at 941-3689 or from the neighbor islands at 877-941-3689. You're listening to Bite Marks Cafe. Ever hear a news story about business or the economy and go, man, why do I care? Yeah, not on Marketplace. We've seen stocks go wild. Customer has gotten really impatient. Okay, first of all, we're talking about awards, Kai. I'm Kai Rizdal. It's the business news of the day. For the rest of us, it's next time on Marketplace from APM. This evening at 6, following Bite Marks Cafe. Hi, Noe Tanigawa, HBR News here. And DJ Mr. Nick of Bridging the Gap. You know, Nick, we've been building bridges across the Hawaiian Islands for 35 years. And now we finally have two statewide streams. We can make each of them a better listening experience. On February 14th, the NPR News Magazine's already on HPR One will be joined by talk and information programs. Plus jazz, blues, and world music programs. And HPR Two will be the exclusive home for classical music. It's going to be more news and more music. Support for Bite Marks Cafe comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk show programming. Mahalo to contributors Nohea Gallery and Straub Clinic and Hospital. Welcome back. This is Bite Marks Cafe. I'm Bert Lum. And I'm Ryan Ozawa. And we're talking to Jim Dater and David Shin, both from the University of Hawaii, about the rise in artificial intelligence and machine learning. And, of course, you can give us a call. That number here is 941-3689 on Oahu or 877-941-3689 from the neighbor islands. And, of course, right before the break. Uh, Jim made a very good case yep. for a concept that he describes as full unemployment mm-hmm. and basically address, addressing the inevitable collision between artificial, artificial intelligence and automation and certainly the workforce, any workforce, not just the American workforce. But I was curious as a result of that because David did say that he thought that another thing that would help would be to uh, advance education to higher degrees to more skilled labor to kind of move uh, keep a little bit ahead of the jobs that are currently being uh, mooted by uh, automation and artificial intelligence. I had to ask, I wanted to ask you, you are teaching a course in artificial intelligence. I can see a student coming in saying, I am, a f- I am concerned about the future of typical jobs. I feel that the future is in artificial intelligence, so I will take this course and study it. What does one learn in an artificial intelligence course at UH? Yeah, so uh, there are lots of different artificial intelligence courses at UH. So at the ones I teach uh, at the undergraduate level, we have sort of a general introduction to the different uh, types of algorithms, uh, so things like knowledge for presentation, you know, how do you represent, you know, what people know about the world inside of a computer so the computer can actually use it. At the uh, graduate level, I teach a course on natural language processing. So, you know, that is, you know, how does, for example, uh, Google Translate work? Mm-hmm. You know? How do you actually get it to be able to translate, say, Japanese into English or vice versa? So if somebody would come through your course and see artificial intelligence as a future career path beyond the graduate or, or or further than that, what would that field of study be? Would it be basically teaching Alexa new tricks or, you know, uh, working with IBM on big data processing? Uh, it could be all of those, right? So 
Yeah, basically, you need to start with a computer science background because you know a lot of this requires programming. So basically, you're writing programs that will extend the computer's capabilities in sort of artificially intelligent ways. You know, one of the things that uh, I recently encountered was a friend of mine sent me an email, and it was sent by uh, which also CC'd another uh, what I thought was a person on the. Uh, on the CC line, which was uh, a person named Amy. <clears throat> and Amy, uh, her last name is Ingram or something like that. And, of course, uh, once the once I responded to that email, then Amy took over and started to kind of converse on selecting a, 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 an appropriate time to meet. Then I soon realized that Amy was an AI agent. And, and basically she was... Uh, Get, pulling enough information together from, you know, the, the the original sender and myself to determine what was the right time for us to meet. This uh, site is is um, x.ai, and I think that sort of points to what you're getting at, David, in, in terms of how would you build something like that, and, and is that sort of like the stepping stone toward a more sophisticated sort of AI agent? Well, I mean... I wouldn't say it's a stepping stone because, you know, most of these applications are sort of dead ends in terms of, you know, what you would need to actually pass, say, the Turing test. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But, you know, they're useful applications in their own right. And, you know, people that, say, study AI, you know, come out and, you know, build these applications and, you know, find gainful employment, right? Mm -hmm. I like the idea of x.ai because it's solving a specific problem that I think a computer could solve. Mm -hmm. Find something in a calendar on both sites that match, but in a conversational mm -hmm. way. I also love that there have been stories that people try to ask Amy out on dates and <laughs> think that she's really sweet when it's really just a construct like that. Now, Jim, I can see someone saying, well, okay, maybe we're looking at uh, artificial intelligence and it's going to be able to automate all kinds of jobs, but it can't possibly replace creative jobs. What about theater? What about the arts? What about uh, even journalism providing context? Are these are these jobs safe? Well, on that last computers? one, I, well, that's already taken <laughs> over by robots, so forget it. But uh, again, there are creative uh, examples of creative um, uh, autonomous beings. I mean, the linking of robotics and manipulability and so forth with something like artificial intelligence are often called autonomous beings. And these things do dance, they do paint, they do play football and soccer, not very well necessarily by some standards. By others, it would pass the Turing test, given what art is. Art is anything you can get away with. And so uh, you don't, if you don't know uh, that it was done by a robot or um, elephant, for that matter, uh, and you think it's done by a human, you would be able to find all sorts of ways of saying it is creative. But my concern is this. Uh, we have come out of an era uh, in which uh, mass employment was necessary uh, large numbers of people working together with machines to produce tons of art <laughs> tons of um, goods and services, so that the big problem we have now is not scarcity. The big problem is getting rid of all the crap we have. And if you don't have a job at the present time, uh, you're not able to earn enough money to buy those things, or more likely, uh, the status to have a credit card. Uh, so that you can go in debt to get these things. We already are living in a world that has so much 
a redundant, uh, unnecessary labor, uh, people working in order to get credit, in order to get access to goods and services that are produced without them, that we need to recognize that as a challenge that is going to continue, that we will never be able to have full employment uh, in jobs in the way that we did in the past. And at the present time, uh, we just have an awful lot of very poor people unemployed, and something's got to be done about that. Mm-hmm. And that's where I think the goal of full, full employment and uh, tra- educating people to be able to live meaningful, peaceful lives of identity that Without means jobs. something to them and others is needed. Are yeah. we at a – I mean, I want to get to this question about are we at the time now where we have to start thinking about this idea of – full unemployment? Yeah, I do. I think that that was the big thing that wasn't discussed uh, during the presidential election, for example. Mm-hmm. A lot of other things weren't, but that we we are at the point where we have time to think about it and try to do something about it. David? Yeah, I have to agree with Jim. Uh, if you look at the Federal Bureau of Labor Statistics mm-hmm. and look at the predicted number of you know college graduates in different areas, the only area where there is a shortage of graduates versus jobs is in computer science. Every other area you look at it, uh, biology, anything else, even engineering, there are going to be more graduates than there are you know, job openings. Mm-hmm. So you know, we are not going to be able to have full employment. And certainly the good jobs for a middle and lower class what used to be the middle and lower class are gone. Mm-hmm. And the idea of bringing them back by building walls and tariff is simply lunacy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, this is a great conversation. Both Jim Dater and uh, David Chin from University of Hawaii were talking about AI. Uh, but we also want to welcome you to join that conversation. Indigo from Kauai, uh, welcome to the show. Hey, aloha. Um, I don't know whether it was David or Jim that just mentioned computer science education. Probably, uh, probably David. And I'm with Kauai Community College, so I'm part of your University of Hawaii system. And one of the problems that we have, we have beautiful equipment at our school, at our college. We've written lovely grants to get it, and, you know, and we have kids coming through the high school that have grown up with technology, and they're not getting an education with that technology. It's not computer sciences are, are not really taught here, uh, environmental sciences, like we have kids come into GIS classes that don't know what a latitude and a longitude is. So I think that we need to honestly rethink education in a way that's going to meet this, this change demand for skill set. And we need to start that very early on so that we can bridge kids to a higher education. Um, I'll give you an example. Is my grandson, he now works as a systems uh, computer specialist for Uber. But he is basically self-taught. He's from Kauai, and he took classes he needed to get an AA degree, and he took math, but he had to teach himself computing. So I think that we really are neglecting our younger generation, not giving them the skills they need. And I'll sign off. Thank you. That's a great comment. We definitely love hearing from you on Quiet from the community college system, and certainly you're closer to the the bone in terms of um, people with perhaps lesser opportunities getting an opportunity to to learn these skills. But uh, David, your thoughts? Yeah, I think that's true, even on Oahu, and actually throughout the rest of the United States too. So you know, there's a big push now, CS for all, computer science for all, mm-hmm. uh, that is nationwide, uh, that is pushing to get computer science. 
education down into the grade schools. And I think it's fair to say, and I'm, I'm sure, Jim, you have a thought on this, that technology seems to be central to young people's lives these days, but is not central to their education to that same proportional degree. Well, I think that uh, I de- definitely agree we need to rethink the educational system from many points of view. But the very fact that most of this technology is self-taught indicates that you probably don't need much in the way of formal education, that the technology now is so um, so friendly, so it is so teaching uh, mm-hmm. itself that the students learn by just doing it. Um, I, I taught for many years media literacy classes, saying that instead of teaching people how to read and write, we should teach them how to produce television shows. And uh, that's not necessary anymore. YouTube has come on, and they now have technology that enable them to produce, if they wish to, very sophisticated uh, audiovisual presentations. And yet we still emphasize reading and writing. Right, right. Well, great conversation. We want to welcome Josh from Makakilo to Bike Marks Cafe. Welcome to the show. Uh, hi, can you hear me? A uh, little, sure. <laughs> yeah, okay. Um, so my wife is in the art education field. Uh, my neighbor is an artist, um, and I'm in the military. Uh, we all do jobs that even as a futurist, I can't imagine artificial intelligence doing. Uh, creativity, teaching children, uh, you know, creativity, and making decisions. Um, how do you see AI creeping into those fields, uh, you know, under the topic of full employment um, or not? Thank uh, great. Josh, Thank you. Great question. Uh, you know, in terms of addressing the sort of the creative angle of it, and, and there will always be instructors and teachers, you know, to fill those positions? Well, again, yes, I think so. And uh, we define full employment, full, excuse me, full employment when 10% of the people aren't working. I think I would define full unemployment the same way. 10% of the people will be working. There are still jobs that, uh, for whatever reason, uh, we want actual humans to do. Uh, And I don't think there are many, and I don't think they need to be onerous, but we need to identify what they are and who gets them. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so, and what happens for people who don't get them? Mm -hmm. That's where the basic guaranteed income and all those other things you came about, uh, talk about. Let me comment that uh, the uh, speaker said he's in the military, and that's one thing that has a very short life for humans. Uh, There is a major policy to make sure that it's all done robotically because you can program the rules of war into a robot and they'll follow them. Whereas humans will not, and certainly more. There's more technology. There's more um, remote operations of aerial vehicles and weapons and such. So I can certainly see that creeping in. As to the question of the arts, and certainly that's uh, a passion of mine. I think one other issue to raise is that certainly there will not be people who don't create art. But it's a matter of whether that art can be converted into something that can allow them to eat and to clothe and to house themselves, which mm-hmm. I think leads to the challenge that you're talking about. Right. So those things should be separated. What you do with your life. Is should be unrelated to your right to have access to goods and services that don't require human labor anymore. So real quickly, you know, like in the last uh, few minutes that we have, uh, you know, this concept of uh, sort of basic income. So in the environment where you have this sort of full unemployment and you have 10% of the workforce, 10% of the workforce working, and you have 90% not working, where where does this basic income come from? 
and how does that get distributed? Well, I don't think it's income. I think basic income now is a step towards the society of full unemployment I'm talking about. Uh, All we need are ways for people to indicate what they want. Uh, and we that's what we call money now or credit or things like this. So we need to find some way in which people can tell the automation, automated processes what the goods and services are they want and that the uh, it can then be figured out it, so that uh, allocation can be done fairly and appropriately. David, did you want to? Well, I think it has to do with, you know, right now, you know, the biggest paid people are performers, right? So sports uh, mm-hmm. people or you know, musicians and so forth. And I think that's going to continue. You know, people are going to find ways to pay for things that they want, and people are going to find ways to get payment for you know, doing things that people want to watch. But uh, right now, I mean, I can certainly see on one hand you can say that full consciousness or even something we would call that is so so far down the line that an idea of basic income or uh, full unemployment is a significant transformation of the world in which we live today. Um, do you have a thought for in the short term? I mean, uh, obviously it involves your employment and what you're paid to do, but uh, computer science technology, including our caller from Kauai, this is something that we could probably safely invest some time and energy into? Oh, yeah. So you want a job in the near future. Go for computer science. <laughs> now, in terms of you know the the timing of all of this, I mean, are we talking about the next five years? Are we sub, uh, you know start to well? C- let me come say that new- we will reach a, if if uh, this technology continues as I think it will and as I think it should, we will reach a society of full unemployment, mm-hmm. uh, not in the next five or ten years, but over uh, coming decades. Uh, and therefore, if that's what I said is just true, we need to begin to prepare for it. Uh, by having more public discussions like this uh, of people that are willing to imagine uh, a world that is quite different from that of the immediate past. Mm -hmm. We are currently in a transition from the old way to the new way, and the new way can still be invented and designed. And I like how a couple of times you did emphasize peaceful in the sense that uh, humans without any requirements and able to do whatever they want, you want to kind of point that energy in a more constructive direction. And there are experiments uh, underway uh, attempting to do that. What would people do if they uh, didn't have to work at all or go through the the steps, the hoops that you have to do now for welfare? Well, I think I would love to uh, take a course in that uh, Department of Leisure that I think they will start over at the University of Hawaii. Well, we want to thank uh, Jim Dater, and of course, uh, he's the director of the Center for Future Studies, and of course, David Chin, the chair of the Department of Computer Science over at the University of Hawaii. We want to thank you both for joining us today. Thank you very much. It was a great pleasure. And thank you both for, and thank you all for listening to Bite Marks Cafe. Please join us next week when uh, Bert will talk about the recent Robot X competition. And of course, if If you miss any part of this edition, you can find the podcast of tonight's show on BiteMarksCafe.org. And, of course, if you have any comments or suggestions, feel free to email us at feedback at BiteMarks.org. You can also find us on Twitter. I'm at BiteMarks. And you can follow me at Hawaii. Our engineer is David Chong, and our executive producer is Beth Ann Kozlovich. And, of course, as as, uh, many of you have already heard, Hawaii Public Radio is preparing to unveil some 
Great new changes coming up on Valentine's Day, February 14th. HPR will be able to deliver more of what you love. For starters, Bite Marks Cafe will be joining its fellow news and talk shows on HPR One. That's right. And of course, there are other moves afoot. You can check out the new times for this and all other HPR programs at hawaiipublicradio.org. And to get the very latest information, be sure to sign up for the station email newsletter while you're there. Now, next week, I'm going solo. Ryan is going to be on assignment sure. in New York City. For his day job. Yep. And, of course, uh, I will see you next week on another edition of Bite Marks Cafe. Say the word.